Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John, John chapter 10. As we move into this chapter, I confess to you that I have been excited about this for a long, long time. John chapter 10, I believe, is maybe the most beautiful chapter in the Bible because it speaks of the personal caring love of our shepherd, uh, that he would love us so much that he would give his life for us is a concept that has become trite. We've become desensitized to it. The world certainly is desensitized to it and thinks so often of the death of the Savior as simply the death of another man. If you were to read carefully through Romans 5, you would see Paul speaking of the willingness or lack of willingness of one who might die for a righteous man, die for a good man, one who might or might not. But Paul's point there is to say that Christ in his death died the just for the unjust. And so at any point in time where you begin to think of yourself or someone else as being worthy of Jesus' death and that maybe others because of their conduct, are contrastingly unworthy of Jesus' death, you have misunderstood Jesus' death. The fact that the shepherd died for his sheep. The shepherd is willing to die for his sheep. This is true of any legitimate shepherd, whether we're talking in agricultural terms or spiritual terms. The true shepherd will give his life for his sheep. And the perfect model is the chief shepherd. And that's what we see in John 10. He was predicted, he was prophesied to be that shepherd. We'll see that in God's word. He came as that shepherd. Matthew 1 tells us that he would come to save his people. And that is, in fact, what he did. This wasn't some sort of gamble. When he died, he accomplished what he intended to accomplish. And if you'll read John 10 with spiritual ears, with humble, receptive, soft-hearted, listening ears, you will see that great and immeasurable care of the one who loves his sheep, granted particularly to and for them. That's what John 10 is about. I believe it's not only the most beautiful chapter in John, I believe it's the most beautiful chapter in the Bible. And so because it is so particularly expressive of his shepherding, loving care, I believe that it is worthy of our significant efforts. I trust that between now and when you spend your time together with your family group, you will have been able to spend some time working through this passage. Make sure you do. Don't let this be one of those weeks where you just didn't get to it. There's nothing more important than understanding who the shepherd is and what he accomplished. When you understand that, then really you understand the basis for everything else that is spiritual. When you understand who he is and what he accomplished and those for whom he accomplished it, you long to know him. You long to rest in him. You long to trust in him. Is the doctrine of election in John 10? Yes, it's in John 10 in very clear and loving and expressive shepherding fashion. Someone uh, shared with me last Sunday, they were still struggling with the doctrine of election, and I said, well, join the club. 
but we see it, so we love it, we believe in it, we trust in it, we don't apologize for it, we're grateful for it. It is an expression of God's perfect love, and so we enjoy that. We know that Christ did not die for the worthy, he died for the unworthy. And so the doctrine of election, first of all, because it's in the Bible, is important, but second, because it's all over the Bible, is very critical for our rich and deep and faithful efforts to understand it. And John Calvin said, if you want to know whether or not you are of the elect, believe in the Lord Jesus. That's what you need to understand. I'm pleased that the doctrines of grace are so very clear, and I'm exceptionally pleased that they are so very clear in John 10. If you want to understand the doctrine of election, keep reading the Bible. If you want to know that you are of the elect, believe on the Lord Jesus. Know him. Know what God has said about him. Know his love. Know his grace. Know his mercy. Know his judgment. Know that he does not wink at sin. Know that because he is a loving God, he is the loving God-man, by no means dismisses the reality that he one day will judge the unrighteous. He will be the executioner and judge of all those who reject him, for sure. And again, we've already seen that. In John, we see Jesus' words to the Pharisees as he tells them, you will die in your sins. He's already marked them out as having heaven's door closed to them. There are those who have passed the point of no return. There are those who have rejected the gospel so passionately and so repeatedly, so deftly turned their ears against truth, so willingly closed their eyes to the light-giving reality of the truth of God's word that Jesus has closed the door. So do not think of Jesus simply as some sort of limp-wristed, loving individual who grants grace to everyone. He grants grace to all those who will humble themselves. And those who refuse to humble themselves before God's grace are themselves guilty and therefore culpable of being rejected by God himself. As we read through John 10 this morning, I encourage you, as I said, to read with careful, loving, humble, receptive ears, spiritual ears. Don't let John 10 be some sort of doctrinal effort for you alone. A doctrinal effort is good, but let it be a spiritual effort. Let this be the moment in which the Lord catapults you to new levels of devotion to the Savior, that you would think about Him that you would find yourself in those moments when you are most discouraged, thinking about him. Let your Christianity not be about the things Jesus did, but let your Christianity be about who he is, that he did what he did because of who he is and because of his love, that he is the chief shepherd, that he who demands of us that we love each other displayed for us what that love should look like by displaying it in himself and to us with perfection. His love is uninterrupted, it is untainted, it is unfading. The love that you and I are to have for one another requires of us that we take the time necessary to investigate our hearts, to assess our hearts and ask the question, am I withholding any forgiveness or love or grace from anyone? That's one of the reasons we enjoy the Lord's table. Did you come here this morning with something against someone? Did you come here unloving towards someone for whom Christ died? Are you bearing grudges? Have you chosen somehow, some way to believe that you have elevated 
yourself rightly above those who you see as lesser individuals. This is what focusing on Jesus does. It requires of us that we think rightly about his care for us, that we would display that care for each other. Well, please look with me, if you would, at John 10, verses 1 through 10. And the Lord says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it. Abundantly. This morning we'll examine the caring shepherd and the destroying thief so that we will follow the shepherd's voice and run from the thief. Point number one in our message this morning what I want you to see is that thieves steal, kill, and destroy sheep, and sheep run from and do not hear their voice. Our passage begins with the words truly, truly. In the Greek, amen, amen, amen and amen. Verily, verily, this is not something that is focused upon because it's verifiable, but because it is true. He's not pointing to the truth by emphasizing its verifiability, but its verity or its reality. He's saying that it is truthful. In fact, it is truth. Jesus draws attention to this with multiplied emphasis by repeating it. When he says, verily, verily, or truly, truly, it's all the more reason to pay that much closer attention, to give your multiplied, focused attention. This is eternally important. It's an admonition. It's a warning of truth. It's a statement intended to protect Warnings are often statements intended to protect, and this one certainly is. He's saying here that there are false shepherds. There are deceivers, those who would steal, kill, and destroy sheep. It's a frightening warning. It's frightening for those who have ears to hear it. For those who do not, they don't fear. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he's a thief and a robber. In first century Palestine, groups of sheep, specific sheep, not just any sheep, would graze under the care of their respective shepherds. Specific shepherds cared for specific sheep day after day. Sheep and shepherd knew each other, and they knew each other well as their days were spent together. Every minute 
with the sheep being fed and cared for by the leading care of the shepherd, sheep would not follow just any shepherd. They followed the voice of their respective shepherd. Grazing or feeding took place during the day under the shepherd's care throughout the pastures and hillsides covered with edible nutritional grass. And the shepherd was responsible for ensuring that sheep found their way to that grass and they didn't wander off into some dangerous or forbidden area where they might fall off a cliff or be eaten by a wolf. So a shepherd's job was and is to care for and to feed and to protect his sheep. Just a parenthetical note here. This is why we have church membership. If you've ever wondered, this ought to lay it out for you so clearly. Who are shepherds responsible for? At night, the shepherd would lead them into a sheep fold with multiple other flocks where they would be protected by high rocky walls with a gate and a gatekeeper, an under-shepherd. As the sheep would enter this corral-like area of safety, as each one would pass through the gate, the shepherd would carefully assess each sheep's condition to ensure that it was not injured from the day's grazing or that he was a sheep from another flock, somehow wandered unnoticed into the flock. The gateway was the place for shepherds to enter and exit, and no other entrance was allowed or appropriate. It was part of the design I used to manage a security company that provided security for hospitals. And our most difficult accounts were those with the greatest numbers of entries and exits. Anyone who works in security will tell you that that's a tactical security nightmare to have lots of entry points and exit points. The more places there are to come in and leave, the more places you need to keep an eye on because of the obvious fact that there are more places for criminals to enter and exit so a sheepfold was a secure place with limited entry and exit. And those who were allowed to enter and exit were only the shepherds. Only the shepherds of the respective flocks were allowed to enter that safe fold. And of course, thieves would work hard to climb up over the rocky, dangerous, and light-threatening barrier so as to avoid being noticed as they stole sheep. Rather than working hard to become a faithful shepherd, he would work hard endangering his life and that of the sheep to steal them for his own use and certainly not for their good. Friends I know in law enforcement will tell you that for many thieves, if they would just apply their occasional hard work ethic in committing crimes to a real job, they'd be successful and actually stay out of jail. But the problem is... A real job requires consistency and reliability. So thieves spend their time thinking about how to work hard every now and then and then live off of what they take from others who actually are reliable. And this is how the thief or the robber would function. This is how he would operate. So he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and he's a robber. You say, what's the difference between a thief and a robber? Thief is kleptase from the word klepto. And as you might imagine, this is where we get our word kleptomaniac, right? He practices theft. It's who he is. 
It's his character. He's come to be marked out by thievery. It's become so common for him that this is what he's known by. That's a thief. Robber is from the term leistes, and it means someone who steals by threatening or carrying out violence against someone to rob him of his possessions. He's not just the quiet, sneaky, rat-like burglar. He's a bully. In fact, he's a terrorist, threatening others with the terror and dread of physical harm to them if they don't give up their goods. Prevalent expression of this in our culture is carjacking. You threaten someone's life if they don't give you their vehicle. Judas was a thief. John 12.4 says, But Judas Iscariot was one of his disciples. He who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Modern likes of Judas are Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, those who profess to be defenders of the poor, and yet they do everything they possibly can to actually steal from the poor, and that's how they get rich. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. He was a thief. He practiced thievery. And so he became known for that. This was his character. His life was characterized by theft. He was a klepto. In John 18, 38, we see the record of Pontius Pilate who went back outside to the Jews and told them about Jesus. He says, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, no, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. The people traded the Messiah for a terrorist. What makes it necessary for sheep stealers to manipulate, to terrorize, to have a practice of thievery is that sheep, real sheep, true sheep, do not cooperate with false shepherds. Now, this should be a lesson to you and to me that as we are increasingly in our day exposed to false teachers, we need to ask the question, are we moved by, influenced by false teachers? Or do we know the voice of the true shepherd? There are a lot of well-known, influential, false teachers. So again, what makes this necessary is that sheep do not cooperate with strangers. They won't follow the thief robber because they don't know his voice. Now look at verse 5 in our text. The stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. They know the voice of their shepherd. They don't know the voice of the stranger. A la trio, a person who does not belong in the environment in which he is found, often He is from another region or another country, the stranger. He shows up. Nobody knows who he is. And so not only do they not follow the stranger, they run in the other direction. And as was frequently the case, Jesus used this analogy to assist those who desired to understand and to further confuse those who only wished to create chaos. That's what parables do. Verse 6 says, this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. We've seen this, haven't we, throughout John, time and time again. The one who just scratches his head 
particularly when Jesus starts to use figures of speech. Why is he further confused by that? Because he was confused to begin with. And I mentioned this in my opening prayer this morning. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15 speak of the problem. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot comprehend them. He has not been given spiritual sight. Unlike the man in John 9 who has been given physical sight but also spiritual sight. And so what was the result? He believed in Jesus and he worshipped Jesus. To further show this to you, look with me at Mark chapter 4. This reality remains true today. Those who do not understand the Word of God are further confused and further frustrated the deeper we go and the clearer it becomes when Jesus uses figures of speech. Mark 4 verse 10, And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. For those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And this, as you know, speaks significantly of the reality that those who are in the faith, those who are of the sheep, those who are in Christ, deliberately, intentionally, passionately, humbly choose to receive the word of God and therefore it results in joy, but not fleeting joy, lasting joy that results in fruit. Someone asked me during our Q&A yesterday what I thought the areas of growth over the years are in our church. And the most obvious is just the reality of spiritual growth, that growth takes place. And so for so many of you, you yourselves, as you assess each other's lives, as you sort of live life together, you minister together, you serve together, you receive ministry from each other, particularly in your family groups, you can attest to the fact that there has been spiritual growth. And you might even say something like, he's going to handle this better today than he would have five years ago. That's fruit. He's discipling someone today, whereas three years ago, he was not interested in doing that. He's interested in being discipled. He's a new believer, but he understands the importance of Listening more than talking as a brand new believer. He wants to grow. 
And a few months later, maybe a year or two later, you can say about that person, you see this growth. The person for whom the parable does not result in joy, it only results in further confusion, is the one upon whom the seed has fallen and perhaps resulted in some joy. That happens a lot. That there are those who initially receive the word of God and they experience some joy. It goes down, but it doesn't go down deep. It doesn't produce a root, but it comes up and there seems to be life and everybody claps their hands. Maybe you've been in a church where people walk down the aisle and people literally clap for them, which I think is absolutely obnoxious because what it says is that person accomplished something when in fact if a person has come to know Christ, it's because Christ accomplished that. And so they receive all this applause and they get baptized and they get more applause and everybody's saying congratulations, praise God for what you have done and the joy dies because the joy was completely and exclusively rooted in something that that person did and not what the Word of God says about who actually does it when someone comes to know the Lord. So no wonder they die a short, miserable, spiritual death having experienced some joy in the context of having been told, Welcome to the family of God when there was no repentance of sin. There was no understanding of God's wrath. There was no understanding of what Christ actually accomplished. And so that joy was not a spiritual joy. It was a fleeting secular joy. Sadly, it was mixed very likely with a lot of other nonsense. We saw in chapter 9 where Jesus made the blind see. You could say it this way. He gave those who were unable to understand parables the ability to understand parables. Those for whom truth was offensive, incomprehensible. He now has made it like bread to eat. He's produced in that person a hunger for truth, similar to how any human hungers for bread. He made the blind man see And he exposed the blindness of those who didn't care to see, but wanted to maintain their religious control over people. This really is, in a sense, an advantage for the true shepherd, for the one who legitimately loves and cares for people. Those out there who are just doing what they're doing for sordid gain, There's a sense in which at times they're the best player on our team because that's the contrast. When you can look at someone and see, it's just painfully obvious that he's only committed to himself. He's only committed to his financial gain. He's only committed to his own fame. But he really wants nothing to do with sacrificial service that leads to spiritual growth, that leads to the better good of everyone whom he is supposed to be serving. That contrast is massive when it is juxtaposed against those who are truly in the Lord and who are true shepherds of the Lord who are being likened to the character of the chief shepherd. You remember from our last time together, John 9, 38 says, he said, Lord, I believe. Why did he believe? Was it because he had done all the work? You know? Somebody gave him the scripture, and all of a sudden he's got physical sight. What did he memorize the Torah all of a sudden? He studied it hard. Now he really understands it. He was an outcast prior to this. He was an outcast as a blind man. 
he wouldn't have had the ability to undergo rabbinical schooling like other Jewish boys would have done. Sure, he would have picked up on a lot of information, having sat and been around those who were studying, those who were reading and proclaiming the Word of God. He would have had some of that secondary default knowledge, but by no means was he a scholar. By no means had he investigated the deeper issues of the Word of God such that he himself would have achieved the ability to say, hey, I get it now. Hey, it's clear. I got it. I worked hard. I understand it. I believe. No, Jesus granted him belief. He granted him physical sight, and then he granted him spiritual sight, not necessarily simultaneously. I don't think we see that. I think we see that he gave him physical sight, and then he went and found him, and he saved him. He gave him the ability to see spiritually, and a little bit at a time, cumulatively, he began to understand things spiritual better and better, to the point that he even began to understand that Jesus was an actual prophet, contrary to the false prophets that he was surrounded with. Jesus said, for judgment, verse 39, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. You know, you know somebody who can't see? I mean, spiritually? Sure you do. You know somebody who is convinced that God will smile upon them, that God will shine upon them, that God somehow has a place in heaven for them, but you are aware that their life bears zero spiritual fruit. You know somebody like that? You might have looked at somebody like that in the mirror this morning in terms of that having been true at least in the past, if not today. But certainly all of us could say that. There was a time there was, where there was no fruit. And there must have been a challenge. There must have been a point in our lives where he would have said, there's no fruit. There's no fruit. There was no fruit in the blind man's life. There was no interest in having fruit. Now God has blessed him with his gracious, providential effort by design, having planned this from prior to his birth. You remember that, right? Whose sin was it that resulted in this man's blindness? Was it his or his parents? And that was because of the Jewish way of thinking that somehow, some way, somebody's sin would have resulted in somebody else's blindness or some sort of physical infirmity at birth. That doesn't make any sense, but that was Jewish traditional thinking. Jesus says clearly, neither. It was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This was God's predestined plan. It wasn't the result of somebody's sin. It was so that God's works would be on display. Verse 40, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. So there was some ability to see truth, but they certainly didn't see it spiritually. They were still in that 1 Corinthians 2.14 category of being able to read truth but not understand it. It's like me trying to read Chinese. It's, it's worse than that when that's pretty bad. Me trying to read Chinese. I'd get nothing done. But the person who at least has the ability to read words, unfortunately, has enough knowledge and enough cerebral ability to convince himself that he's understanding what he's reading, and yet he always gets it wrong. You ever notice that? Over time, the person who clearly has no spiritual life will use God's word for all kinds of purposes. He'll use it and abuse it for all kinds of 
purposes, none of which is the glory of Christ, none of which is the glory of the great shepherd. It's always somehow about defending his own works, defending his own life. If you say we see, then your guilt remains. And the point is that you claim to have spiritual sight. You claim not to be blind. You even act sarcastically, are we blind too? Well, you have just enough sight to yet be condemned because you've had truth, you've been taught truth, and yet you did not approach it, you did not pursue it, you did not sit under it humbly with an eager willingness to be taught. You simply approached it as a tool by which you might obtain control over other people. Now, there's no break here between chapter 9 and chapter 10, so there's no reason to think that the blind man who now sees or the Pharisees somehow are not on scene. They are. Jesus just continues talking, and he's talking in the presence of the blind man. He's talking in the presence, as you can see from where we are here, in the presence of the Pharisees. Jesus was speaking about the Pharisees, where in verse 8 he says, All who came before me are thieves and robbers. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. He's not talking about the true prophets. He's talking, obviously, about those who pretended to shepherd the flock. He's talking about those who were the religious leaders of the day, those who professed to be caretakers of spiritual people. But the sheep did not hear them. True sheep would have known this is not the real thing. True sheep would not have been deceived by Joel Osteen or Benny Hinn or Beth Moore. True sheep understand that true shepherds speak truth not for the purpose of drawing attention to self. The one who unapologetically but graciously speaks truth is the one who displays the love and the kindness and the shepherding spirit of a true shepherd. Jesus was speaking of those to whom the newly healed man said, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes. See, that's the beauty of the new believer's gusto. His determination to just speak what he knows. I know what happened. You know, for the brand new believer who has understood the gospel well enough that he's able to communicate it, he doesn't need to be able to preach a sermon. What he simply needs to be able to say is, I understand that my sin, for which I am guilty, warrants the wrath of God. And I understand that Christ bore that wrath on my behalf He knew my name, he died for me, and therefore, in his resurrection, he displayed the power that he has granted to me over that sin. See, that's the message of the new believer. You can't tell me that didn't happen, right? For the person for whom that happened, he knows the relief of no longer needing to rest in his own works, which never brought rest anyway. This blind man who now sees goes on to say, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. 
Ever since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. You could say they cast him out again. But they cast him out. Why? Because he brought truth to bear upon the thieves and the robbers' hearts. He brought the truth of the true shepherd to bear upon their hearts because they were not true shepherds. They dismissed him. They cast him out. They are thieves and they are robbers and they serve the ultimate thief who according to verse 10 comes only to steal and kill and destroy It is the strategic work of the ultimate thief and robber to steal, kill, and destroy those whom the chief shepherd loves. There is a strategy. It is no mistake. It is no accident that when there are those who are deceived, they are deceived by Satan's design. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Jesus is saying, I warned you of this before. I'm telling you again now. There will be those who will intend and will strive and will strategize to deceive even those who are clearly my sheep, the elect. It's a warning. It's a warning against the reality that thieves steal, kill, and destroy sheep. And those who receive the warning, those who are true sheep, run They run from false teachers. Many of you ran from false teachers when you found us. Now, we are not the only true church. There are good churches. There are solid churches. We know of other faithful churches that are cared for well by faithful shepherds. But I think more and more it's becoming obvious that there are many churches that are not churches. There are many shepherds who are not shepherds. There are many false shepherds. There are thieves and they are robbers. And if you deny that and you think that that's somehow sort of some sort of paranoia on my part or someone else's part, you're really missing one of the dual points that Jesus is making here. There are false teachers. And we'll get more into that as we go. Really what he's talking about here at this point is not so much those who pretend well. He's talking about those who don't pretend. They're thieves. They sneak in the back door. They try to do everything they do in such a way that they will not get caught. They do it at night. They do it at a time when no one will see. And Jesus says, the sheep don't follow them. True sheep don't follow them. This is why Paul warns in 2 Timothy that there will be a time when there will be those who will only want their ears tickled. They will only want to hear what they want to hear. They will subject themselves to a scenario that makes them feel just good enough about their lives and what they do. It will cultivate and nurture their self-esteem. They'll walk out feeling great about self, and therefore there will be no need to have a great shepherd. There will be no need to have a great savior. There will be no need to worship the king. 
because they walk out feeling like, oh, Jesus is my pal, and I kind of got it going on, and things are good for me, and my life is okay, and therefore I'm all right. And they know that that's not true, but they go back week after week after week because they keep hearing that, and for at least a day and a half or so, they believe it. And then reality sets in. And for those who are truly given sight, they grow weary of hearing cotton candy week after week. They grow weary of their stomachs being filled with that which does not satisfy. It only fills the void for a very, very short time. They want to be fed, and they want to be protected, and they want to be cared for. And that really, in a sense, is the usefulness, if I can call it that, of the spiritual thief the spiritual robber. He is the contrast. He is the backdrop against which the true shepherd is known for and trusted in his shepherding care. So the second thing I want you to see this morning from our text, the true shepherd leads, cares for, and gives abundant life to his sheep, and his sheep know and follow his voice. Verse 2 says, But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when you've sung that song in the past, he knows my name. You sang truth. He does not somehow ambiguously and only collectively cast his love upon a group of people. Those whom God has saved that he would grant one day unto his son as his son's bride are those who display that reality because they love his voice. And it's not an audible voice. It's that which you read in the Word. I think it was Justin Peters who said that if you want to hear the voice of God, read your Bible out loud. Where I grew up, the organization Future Farmers of America, FFA, was wildly popular and very important. You always knew who was in FFA because they wore a navy blue corduroy jacket with the gold FFA emblem on it, and they wore it proudly. And I grew up with a lot of people with those jackets. I wasn't a farmer, and I wasn't a future farmer, but I knew a lot of them. My friend Bobby Hackney was one of them. He took me with him one time to feed his sheep. Thought it would be fun. Feed the cute little sheepies. Sure, Bobby, I'll go Do that with you. Sounds so sweet. So he took me to this corral. And he opened a heavy iron gate. And he said, are you ready for this? I'm like, of course I'm ready for the little things. (laughs) So with one effort, with one call, he loudly said one word and one word only. I'll never forget. He took his thumbs, and he put him in his pants like this. And he leaned back, and he looked at me, and he said, Sheep! And here I am, standing in ankle-deep mud already. And I look up, 
And here comes this dark gray cloud of animalness. And I'm frightened. Because when I think of sheep, I'm thinking of, you know, the little white lamby cutie thing. And it, you pet it and it purrs and, and all that. Yeah, I guess sheep don't purr. I don't know if sheep, I don't know. I grew up with cats. You pet them and they purr and then they bite you, you know. And, and I was frightened. And they were not little. They were big. Some were little, but more of them were big. And that's all I remember is these eyes coming at me. You know, and I'm thinking I'm pretty sure I'm going to get run over by these small elephants. Um, and it hit me. It was obvious later. They knew him. And it didn't take much to recognize him. They knew his voice. They knew Bobby's voice. Now, let me just say this is not a pleasant experience for me because they were completely disinterested in me, so much so that they nearly trampled me. I left muddy, run over, and unimpressed with sheep. There was no confusion, though, for them as to who their shepherd was. None. A stranger they would not follow. To him, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. It's not unusual even today for shepherds to actually name their sheep one by one. Verse 4 says, When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. When he puts forth all his own, when he puts them forth, when he displays the reality that he has chosen them and he sets them apart, he goes ahead of them. He walks ahead of them. He does what he does and they follow behind. That's what sheep do. And like with my friend Bobby, these sheep just happily followed him wherever he went, stepping on my shoes the whole time. You know, I'm of no interest to them. They didn't know my voice. They didn't care about me. Down in verse 27, and we'll look at this again closely in the next couple of weeks, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. He doesn't say that about anybody else. I know them, and they follow me. This is what you might call the narrative expression of the reality that there is a shepherd-sheep relationship between Jesus and Christians. And those who claim the name of Jesus but have nothing to do with him really ought to take note. But the problem is this truth falls on deaf ears. And far worse for those who think they are sheep because they hang out with sheep but they do not really follow the shepherd. He doesn't know them. You know from Matthew 7, these frightening words, depart from me for I never knew you. This is the same word. The knowledge that Jesus has of his sheep is a special, intimate knowledge. The prayer that Jesus prays in John 17, 
excludes non-sheep. Now show me one place in Scripture where it's indicated that someone becomes a sheep. These are sheep in eternity past. These are those upon whom he has placed his special love. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And for those who might say, well, so if Jesus determined this in eternity past, then I guess there's no hope for me. Walk through the door. Acknowledge the door. If you want to know whether or not you're one of Jesus' sheep, trust in the chief shepherd. Repent of your sins. Call upon his name. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. In other words, he will be in that fold where he is protected for particular timing and for particular purposes. And when he comes out of the fold into the pasture, he will eat well. He will be well cared for in both scenarios. Verse 10 concludes with Jesus saying, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. This is not about having a nice car, great job. That's not the point at all. The point is that there is spiritual life so abundant that those things are fading in importance in a person's life. You can think of it this way, for the person who is growing increasingly committed to and dependent upon earthly things, he is growing less and less interested in being focused upon things in heaven. John 4.10 says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That's the idea. That's the idea. That abundant life is Jesus. It's not just being enamored with him. It is that, but it's being dependent upon him. John 7, 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There will be an overflowing reality that in his abundance of joy, in his heart, in knowing Jesus, he will also provide joy for others who need it. That's why you need people in your life for those times when you're discouraged and you need someone to remind you of the living water, the abundant life, the joy that Christ has given us in forgiveness of sins. 2 Corinthians 9, 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Is that the cry of your heart? Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now let's put this all back together and read it in the order that the Lord gave it to us. John 10, 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by any other way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. 
So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Ezekiel 34, 23 tells us, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And this is the prophetic reality of the lineage of Jesus in David coming to him that he would be the shepherd. Obviously David's not that shepherd. Jesus is that shepherd. Micah 5, verse 4, And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. One day when Jesus returns and he will reign on the earth, he will be the peace of all of those who are in his fold. But is he your peace today? Is he your peace? Isaiah 53, verse 6 tells us, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the next time you decide to establish that your confidence is in some transaction you initiated, some decision you made, some prayer you prayed. Remember this, he caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That's the hope of your salvation, not something you did. 1 Peter 2, 19 says, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Is that you? Are you enduring injustice? Today, verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. How does that work today? What does that look like today? Looks like this in 1 Peter 5, 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. 
And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You remember a few weeks ago from Matthew 18.10 when we read the parable of the sheep, 99 of whom stayed home and one who went astray. He wandered. What do you think? If a man has 100 sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? That's why you need a church. That's why you need church membership. That's why you need a shepherd, an earthly shepherd, earthly shepherds who will care for you in the way that Jesus, the chief shepherd, cares for you. Verse 13, and if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Why? Because in the moment, this is restoration. This is the result of shepherding care, shepherding efforts. And sometimes that might mean that someone other than someone who is in a shepherding role goes to that wandering sheep because that's the better approach. But either way, true shepherds are behind that care for people that goes and seeks them out when they wander like wandering sheep. Verse 14 in Matthew 18 says, So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones shall perish. It's not the will of the Father that any one of his sheep would perish. And so in his care for his sheep, he has provided shepherding care for every individual. This is why we have family groups. This is why we have asked you to be connected to the body, to be connected to a shepherd, be connected to a leader in our church who would care for you the way Jesus has commanded that we care for you. But our hope is not in any human caretaker. Our hope is in the reality that the chief shepherd will one day relieve us of all the difficulties of being a dirty, difficult sheep. And we see that in Revelation 7, 17. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Father, we rest in the chief shepherd. And we hear his voice, and we follow him. And we ask even now that you would help us to do that for his glory. Amen.